Hi, this is Lex, and welcome to the Fintech Blueprint. It's your podcast about fintech, decentralized finance, digital banking, investing, robo-advice, artificial intelligence, and all the other frontier technology that is transforming financial services. To get more content, like an illustrated transcript of this conversation in your inbox, subscribe at fintechblueprint.com. So without further delay, let's jump into today's episode. Welcome, Will. Wonderful to have you back on the podcast. Likewise. We are in a weird moment. Uh, I think the last several years have been a weird moment. Maybe the last 20 years have been a weird moment. But we're in a particularly weird moment, and I'm sure that our listeners have been saturated with a discussion of GameStop and Robinhood and the exposure of financial market structures. But I think we can add to this conversation, and I think we can paint a broader picture of what's what's going on after all this fintech uh, has come together and has transformed the the consumer fintech experience. And so, you know, for for context, um, the very last bit on the the GameStop saga is that um, Robinhood raised three point four billion, three point four billion dollars, and is looking for another billion dollar uh, debt uh, facility uh, so that they can continue to allow Reddit to speculate on GameStop. What do you think about this whole situation? Who is, what, what is going on in the first place? All right, so I, I don't want to jump straight into highest level concepts. I think that a little bit of context is still useful. I'm sure that you're right that a, a lot of people listening to this have been following closely. In fact, they've probably been investing or or more likely their kids have been investing you know they're middle school and high school age kids so when you you know see them driving up in in new cars you'll uh you'll understand where it came from so you know th- this is what like it, it's effectively a call it continuation but a very extreme continuation of the idea of kind of d- distributed you know thinking power back to mm-hmm. the people uh using the internet and and increasingly, I guess, internet plus good, cheap uh, technical infrastructure and and technology products, which, in a sense, democratize access. And in fact, we've been talking about democratizing access to financial services and investing in banking probably for a long time, certainly uh, since 2008, when the the problem was, you know, concentration of Effectively, power and decision making and risk taking, um, you know, bad alignment of interests and too big to fail, and that was followed by the kind of anti one percent movement, Occupy Wall Street, and and where where my mind goes directly uh, in in watching all of this, and I fully understand why this is so fascinating. You know, I, I tend not to be the type that you know that watches car wrecks with uh, with great <laughs> excitement you know but but this there, there's something about this which i think is more than just immediate carnage you know i think it's i think it's something of a i don't want to call, call it a watershed event because i don't think the event in itself is what's 
going to cause change, but I think it's a very strong indicator of much deeper shifts uh, in, in financial services that pull together so many of the topics that we talk about, which is you know, be- better products for retail users, better technology, better access, cheaper access, and all of that kind of coming together to challenge incumbent market structures effectively. Yeah. So to your point, let's, um, let's just lay the, the bricks. Uh, GameStop is a physical retailer of video games, often um, used video games, that lots of 80s and 90s kids grew up with and loved. GameStop has a horrible business in the same way that Blockbuster um, you know, or uh, Barnes & Noble or Borders uh, or Kmart at this point have a horrible business, which is uh, it is not the Epic video game store or the Steam video game store where the action really is. Therefore, if you are a quote-unquote serious financial investor and run a multi-billion dollar hedge fund, you go out and you say, I'm going to short GameStop because it's going to die like the the rest of these terrestrial mall shops. And that goes well until um, a Redditor sees your, uh, your position and realizes not based on the fundamentals of GameStop's economics, but on just the sort of the the amount of exposure you have to the stock and the mechanics of shorting where you need to borrow the stock in order to sell the stock and make the price go down uh, you know th- this person realizes that it's possible to create a short squeeze or uh, an artificial price increase um, against the person with a short position who's paying interest who's you know ge- generating losses and getting margin calls and so um, not only uh, does this Redditor invest, but also the entire uh, Reddit forum of Wall Street Bets uh, backs this idea. And people start to, to do this short squeeze by the millions. Other hedge funds realize that, come on, the fundamentals don't work and continue to pour money against, um, say, the, 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 the common investor, which only pisses everybody off. And then the Reddit um, movement is less about GameStop, and it's much more about just the anger and resentment from 2008 that people have held, you know, through through these very incendiary uh, presidential administrations and and so on. Um, and it becomes a symbol, and so people through the internet self-organize to send a financial message. Um, and, and basically overpower the tug of war with Melvin Capital and you know some of the uh, some of the other backers like uh, Steve Cohen and so on. Now, um, what do they use to you know to organize? They use social media. What do they use to trade? Well, of of course they tra- they use Robinhood to trade. Perfect name, right? Perfect name. I mean, designed for this, built for this, R- right? Or, or is it? It's just so funny to me because, um, and I've said this elsewhere, but it's, you know, Robinhood is not Wall Street. Robinhood is a Silicon Valley company to the bone. This is not about Robinhood and Wall Street. Like, the, the two are just different. And Silicon Valley, you know, gives away things for free and then monetizes the, the users on the back end. And so Robinhood sort of 
take from the rich and give to to everyone mantra not a really good fit for this particular robin hood because this particular robin hood you know takes the rich um and uh sells to the rich uh all of the uh retail order flow so that hedge funds can place orders within it or you know we we can have a whole separate conversation around that yeah this well it's like the, it's the classic it's the classic if you're not paying for the product then you are the product and i think that applies to retail investors on Robinhood. Yeah. And, you know, look, this is not nefarious. Like advertising is not nefarious. It's just a business model that sucks for the consumer. And similarly, selling order flow doesn't have to be nefarious. It's just you have to understand what it is that you're getting into. I mean, maybe just go to another broker that doesn't sell order flow and it's it's your choice. Yeah. But but yeah, but specifically this, right? I, I do want to dig into this point because I think it's so relevant. So the from from memory, you, you were the one who called it out to me a few months ago about the. I think it was. I mean, it was a hundred million plus. I think that Robinhood had generated in one quarter, maybe, uh, in basically rep, you know revenues associated with the order flow slash like kind of anonymized trade data and and trend data. I guess that they were selling to, to, you know, to basically hedge funds and high frequency trading firms. Is that, am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. So, um, the, the numbers are quite, quite severe. Um, Robinhood probably made over a billion dollars in order flow payments in 2020. Now, um, if you dig into the market structure, again, it's, it's not really that it's not nefarious. It's just market structure. So you know you've got the exchanges um, like the Nasdaq or the New York Stock Exchange, and on on top of those exchanges, you have uh, market makers, which make sure that there is a market to buy and sell various um, securities. And one of those market makers is Citadel Securities. You know, Virtu Financial is another company. And if you talk about high-frequency trading shops and things of that nature, you know, they're, they're basically on top of exchanges taking, uh, taking orders. And the way they make money is they take spreads. You know? So they take a tiny spread on everybody's transaction. Now, if you're in that business, you're, you're not taking a long or short position. You just want to execute the trades. And you might pay 10% of your PL to purchase order flow because you get to keep some of the spread. Um, you know, you can, you can have sort of more cynical reads. I don't agree with all of the cynical reads, but you could say, um, they're buying order flow in order to front run it, which is a conspiracy. Um, or you can say, which I do believe they're buying order flow so that they can hide larger trades in there. They can, they can put block trades, you know, a $50 million trade of Apple without impacting the stock market. You can basically place into a stream of uh, a, a giant stream of retail payments. And so for a market maker, paying Robinhood to be the lead gen makes a lot of sense. And again, you can be cynical with it. You can be conspiratorial with it. Um, it's just today's um, today's market structure. And so that's where all of Robinhood's economics essentially come from. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it's, I think given the history, right? Like, Dating back to 2008 and, you know, way, way uh, before that, the the onus is on a, in a sense on 
you know, the, the financial industry and, you know, these, these larger players specifically to kind of, you know, engender in, in confidence that what they're doing uh, does, does make sense for everyone. And it's not self-serving and it's not, you know, purely kind of self-interested uh, and, and profit motivated uh, in ways that are, that are manipulative. Uh, it, I, I don't tend to be, you know, the kind of frontline revolutionary in a lot of this stuff, but I absolutely understand the frustration of the, you know, of the of the retail investors. And and I think, you know, maybe we get back into it by picking up the story and how things evolved, but you know, basically what happened is that due to again these market structures and specifically clearing houses and collateral requirements at clearing houses the same, you know, these same "quote unquote" democratized platforms that were allowing retail investors to access stocks like GameStop to begin with, then basically had to shut down the ability for retail investors to to build positions. This run up fueled by the the Reddit forums, as you're talking about, and the free stock trading platforms, in which is which is you know squeezing to the point of you know near near bankruptcy, in some cases, perhaps bankruptcy of, of hedge funds that are that are short the stock. Effectively, the run up gets artificially cut off because access to you know, new buy orders is is cut off for retail investors. So the, the people that are driving this run up, the people that are, you know, putting money into these stocks um, are effectively prevented from continuing to do so, which then gives oxygen back to the hedge funds on the other side who took the opportunity to effectively recover and then and then as you know as expected at some point the valuation of the company returns to at least you know some semblance of normality meaning that retail investors take take losses at least that you know those who were still in the stock and the hedge funds are quote unquote bailed out and sure you uh you talk about it's the market structure. It's it's you know the way things are are designed, and they're designed this way be- because it's supposed to help everything work better, and it's supposed to help limit systemic risk. And the whole reason that uh, th- this whole kind of piece that I just described happened is because of these collateral requirements at um, clearing houses, which are intended to ensure that large brokerage firms, you know, like. Lehman back in the day, and this time Robinhood and others don't go out of business, uh, causing you know knock-on bankruptcies and, and instability across the industry. But now you know perhaps we get to, we get to the bigger question, which is, in a sense, like is this inherited market structure from the past, from a much less you know cloud-based, API-based uh, past? Is it the right market structure? Will it continue to be the prevailing market structure going forward? Sometimes people will say kind of market structure as a as a flag for this opaque uh, industry value chain. And I think in this case, we can we can have a very reasonable intuition of just what's going on that that is not a nefarious intuition, but which still creates outcomes that makes people feel like, the oligarchs always get to win, you know, and so why does the DTCC, the clearinghouse, which is where all of these equities um, 
live. Why does it need collateral? It needs collateral because trades take two days to quote unquote settle. Everything else is sort of a rearrangement of paper. You know, the truth is at the clearinghouse, the truth about who owns what. And so um, if it takes two days for a trade to complete for the equity to transfer ownership for the cash leg, the cash piece to move from one person to another and everything to kind of check off and get reconciled. And it takes two days to do that. You're, you've got two days of risk. You got two days of if everybody dies, who owes what to whom? And Lehman, uh, you know, and Bear Stearns, uh, and almost Merrill Lynch uh, had these uh, death or near-death experiences as a result of that that gap, that time of uncertainty, you know. And therefore, like you said, um, it's there's an insurance pile. You basically keep keep money at stake as collateral to have your brokerage house be alive. And the moment people think that you're not going to be alive, they're going to take that collateral. And if you don't have enough, you're dead because you're overlevered and so on. And so Robinhood raising $3.4 billion, on the one hand, it's like, oh man, these guys sure know how to, how to fundraise and grow a profitable business. The other take is, oh man, if they don't have $3 billion to put up because they have 10x the collateral requirements for DTCC, you know, they're dead. Now, from the outside, we can't. It's it's hard to know. It's hard to tell. But you know, it's it's up to our audience to drive to their own conclusions. So, as it relates to modern market structure, at this point, I'm pretty self radicalized about the answer. But there are uh, the real time trade settlement systems. You know, blockchain's been talking about changing collateral management and clearing and settling now for nearly five years and lots of people roll their eyes about why would a why would an industry want to strip out what works quote unquote and put in something new um, and so it's been it's been very hard to actually and I guess the the answer based on this on this specific you know series of news events is that is that it doesn't work right or hence hence there's opportunity for improvement yeah and it's um, the sort of caricature the cartoon that um, I've drawn about it before is, you know, you can't build a Spotify of CD-ROMs, which is what Robinhood is. And if it uses DDCC and every single broker, it's not just Robinhood that turn off the trade button. It was also TD Ameritrade and it was E-Trade, right? All the brokers that are in this game. Robinhood just happens to have the most cognitive gap between its promise to, to its users um, and its behavior. So I, you know, we, we do have answers in the shape of blockchain-based market infrastructure, and the the clearest sort of test of that is decentralized finance, which um, has not waited for equities and has just created its own digital assets. And and I believe Uniswap, the decentralized exchange, had sixty billion dollars uh, worth of, of volume that's traded around without you know all all real time settled. There are lots of problems in DeFi uh, to be discussed separately, but I think this example is just so educational for what doesn't work about the current setup. All right, so let's use this as an opportunity to pivot into the larger point, which which is a point you were you were making to me right before we started recording. Do you want to do you want to dive in and summarize it? 
Yeah, let me tee it up as a both a, both a rhetorical statement and a question as to what you think. You know, so there is a new American finance forming. We know what the new Chinese finance looks like in the shape of Alibaba and and uh, uh, mobile payments and all that. We have not known what the new American finance looks like because the betterments of the world, um, the SoFi's of the world, despite being nice, solid businesses, did not seem to be too upsetting to the Black Rocks and the Vanguards and the Goldman Sachs's. But I think what we see now is finally an emerging new, uh, an emerging new American finance. And so what does it consist of? It consists of uh, fintechs, B2C fintechs, that have all footprints of over 10 million users, right? So you take Robinhood, uh, you take Chime, which is now over 12 million people. Uh, you take Square and Stripe uh, and Affirm. And of course, Coinbase with its 40 million people. Uh, and to me, this collection, this collection of five to 10 companies represents the formative experience for anybody between the ages of eight you know, to 25 interacting with financial products today. And so I think it's, it's starting to coalesce together. And the question, I guess, is you know, how, what does it look like in five years? What what is the average person just going to live inside of this ecosystem? Do you see that happening, and do you see any pitfalls? Okay, I'll try not to jump straight to the second part of your question. Um, but look, in, in terms of the first part of the question, I mean, th this is this is everything that we as fintech have been talking about, like since the very beginning. You know, this is finally like, uh, oh hey, there are much better you know, tech and software solutions to solving all these traditional finance problems. Uh, and, and specifically, I think what we're talking about is is the set around, you know, retail finance and specifically like the, you know, you know quote unquote, last leg, you know, where, where users actually interact with these these companies and these products. And in my mind, I kind of split it into to two pieces. One is basically um, pr providing access uh, or you know products or tools or whatever to previously unbanked or underbanked and i think that chime and and cash app are doing uh, a ton of work in that space and i'm very hopeful that that on ramp for you know for for large numbers of people you talk, you talk about chime now having 12 million customers i hope that becomes an on ramp you know to a better future to more opportunities to continued you know financial education for for everyone um and eventually to long-term financial well-being to everyone i hope that doesn't become an an acquisition an acquisition channel into uh high interest lending credit cards uh and things like that can i just pause you here on chime sure. because i think you're you're much deeper on on them than I am, uh, and th they've really broken away. You know, in the in the way that Square has broken away from Venmo in tapping into uh, into payments and really tapping into culture and influencers to to drive payments. Uh, Chime has broken away from nearly every other 
attempt in the U.S. at a neobank. They're ahead of Money Lion. They're ahead of Aspiration. You know, they're they're ahead of uh, really anybody else who's tried to do the same. Why? Why? What is it that they do that you think works? I mean, this. So this could probably be, you know, a, a fifty-page like research report and you know series of financial models and various other things but if i you know distill it in my own mind down to two things it's great technology and savvy marketing and i think it started with great technology and you know, of course great technology subsidized by the non-durban um uncapped interchange which everyone was using and is using so it's not like that was unique to chime but I think they did a great job of um, capitalizing on a market opportunity, building great technology, um, communicating you know, a value proposition to customers, tapping into a segment that was underserved. And then very quickly from there, raising tons of money, including from some influential people and, and turning that money into a very, very, very effective uh, national, you know, marketing effort. So everything from sponsoring the Dallas Mavericks to TV commercials, they've just done an amazing job of getting their brand out. And then I think, you know, there's also a component which is specific to the the product set. And I'd have to dive back into it and re- refresh my memory a little bit, but get paid, the combination of get paid two days early, uh, which they were one of the early companies to do, certainly at scale, and I think they have basically like um, kind of an overdraft alternative, free overdraft alternative. Um, th- I think that combination really, really resonates and, and solves a lot of problems for a large number of people in America. It just always boggles my mind what works in the States. The, you know, just the kind of population the kind of national population and the kind of average financial situation you need for a overdraft financing product to be a core driver of a of neobank adoption it you know it's almost tragic right because overdraft protection is is a loan for when you don't have enough money and um to have so many people that are living always on the edge of needing just a little bit more money than they have. I mean, that that is tragic at scale. And Chime's got 12, min, 12 million people who who benefit from this. So I, I do think it's, you know, kind of going to, to this concept of a new American finance where you have the Chime users who are, you know, on the edge. And then you've got the Robinhood users who are, um, we know from, from, the Melvin Capital example, right? Just like how much resentment there is against uh, Wall Street and the hedge funds. Uh, it's it's a scary power. It's really a whirlwind. Yeah, and I mean, if you know, if we look at this from the you know the most hopeful, the most optimistic standpoint, like the Ch- Chime and Robinhood, and I think the other the other companies that you've mentioned that are really really scaling fast now are providing that alternative that I think people 
you know, again, at least uh, since 2008 and probably before have been craving, you know, the reason that people have been so angry for so long. And, and, you know, again, game, a la GameStop, it's still, it's still there is because the existing offerings, the existing marketplace, the existing industry doesn't serve their interests or meet their needs. So there's, you know, that, that simple stat, right. That gets thrown out all the time. And I think, I think there's actually some improvement has been made from the, you know, the version that, that, um, you know, con- continues to, or at least originally caught headlines that the something like 50% of Americans don't have $400 in savings. Like if for that stat to be true, something is broken, you know? And, and I think Chime and Robinhood and, and Square and these other companies you mentioned are part of the solution, or at least they have a huge opportunity to be part of the solution. I think they filled a space in the market and they filled it with products that people need. Now the opportunity if we're to move beyond the uh, the in in many ways, as you mentioned, stressed situation, uh, financial situation for a lot of Americans, the opportunity is to is to turn that into financial education, financial literacy, um, better better uh, access to credit in ways that serve users, uh, you know, and eventually long term financial well being. Right? It's not to turn that into uh, high interest credit cards and you know, unsecured consumer debt and types of traditional financial products that that kind of got us where we are now in the first place. I hold. Um, I guess I was I was professionally raised in an asset allocation diversification environment, and I've um, internalized the importance of financial planning uh, in the wealth management space. The importance of risk-adjusted returns, the damage that speculation can do to achieving goals in the long run, you know, the, the problems of lotteries and uh, options and, and all of these things. And so it's a really, it's a weird moment, right? Because it's, I, I look at what's quote unquote popular and it is, um, it's a lot of moonshots. It's a lot of underwriting debt. Um, it's a lot of kind of speculative trading, um, you know, whether it's Tesla or crypto. Um, and I think it just, it reflects the the financial situation that the country is in. And I think one of the uh, biggest symptoms is Coinbase. You know, and I think in 2012, if you were to ask me this question, I would have gotten it 100% wrong, right? So is, is, is the future of American asset management uh, or, or wealth management is the future of that something like Betterment or Wealthfront, which is floating at 25 or 30 billion of assets? Or is the next generation going to be buying digital assets on Coinbase, which is now at 90 billion in assets? And of course, the answer in 2012 would have been Betterment or Wealthfront, and it was wrong. The answer is clearly Coinbase with its 40 million users and absolutely astounding rise uh, to what is likely over a billion in revenue um, last year, um, and an IPO that's going to—it's not an IPO; it's a direct listing on on the Nasdaq that's going to hit this year. And I think in the private markets, Coinbase is is trading around fifty billion in, in enterprise value. And I think it's just um, as big a symbol of the the change in the underlying consumer preferences, you know, as as you can look for. I think it's a 
super bright signal. But I wonder if I've just self-radicalized, if I've persuaded myself of um, of this happening or whether you you think that's right and you see it as well. Okay, so it's extremely difficult to argue with reality and the reality uh, you just laid out. Questions I would ask are, are around the kind of, I don't want to call it pro- you know, problem to be solved, but like what what is the point of investing, you know? And like what what goals are people theoretically trying to achieve by investing? And then, you know, what what are what are there for you know given all those inputs the best the best ways of doing that and i think it's very clear that kind of over intellectualizing uh you know just gets you to i don't know either the kind of like private wealth model where there's this like asymmetric information uh setup which results in high fees or uh the assumption that super complex, you know, self-rebalancing, passive, you know, portfolios um, are, are like the only or the optimal solution. I think all of those, you know, both of those things kind of take, take less account for the, the human psychology, maybe than, uh, than they should, you know, and I, and I think if you, if you only account for the human psychology, then you get then it's easy to get to speculation. And I think especially if you look back over the past 10 years of, you know, basically like maybe it's more than 10 years now, like kind of like, you know, stock market bull run, especially in technology. I mean, I, I, I think like you and many who are surely listening to this podcast, am totally convinced that the future of finance and the future of the world is digital, uh, increasingly digital and and so it's tough not to view all the companies that are doing great work in that space as being highly valuable, um, you know, even on like a discounted cash flow basis, traditional investment valuation type type basis. That said, um, the the world moves in cycles, you know, and ideally, we you know collectively should be accounting for these things, uh, and and not just, I guess, looking for investment solutions that, you know, that happen to be high performing over the past few years. God, I sound like my dad. (laughs) Uh, We are, we're all our dads uh, at this point. Look, I I did a, I did a write-up on, on this topic earlier um, this week, and it got picked up by Zero Hedge, which you know, is exciting to get the exposure, but then I looked a little bit more into the demographics of Zero Hedge, and it's, you know, it's like um, the anarchist, libertarian, right-leaning uh, sort of internet wave, the same part of the the Reddit wave, um, with a perma-bear point of view on the economy, which is that, you know, the Federal Reserve is overprinting money, which it's it's hard to argue with on the one hand because of the t- the three trillion last year. Uh, on the other hand, nobody's spending that money because inflation is not going up. Instead, they're putting it into capital assets like the stock market and certainly into crypto assets. Uh, and so that leads to the conclusion of these inflated prices and kind of a, a wealth effect. Um, 
uh, and and a disconnect from quote unquote fundamentals and you know a manipulation of the machinery of money and i just found myself articulating these views which um maybe are conspiratorial and i'm and i worry that i'm uh sort of falling off the cliff a little bit in my points of view but it definitely feels like um the price levels of everything are are super high and you know, thinking about risk-adjusted returns and thinking about the long term would really serve uh, investors well, especially as um, you know we kind of pick up these topics of financial health and and financial literacy and so on. So I guess you know the the balances for this new American finance on you know is it it has democratized access. Everyone's got everything for free now, from credit to trading and so on. Um, but it also creates this whirlwind, this kind of Twitter version of financial services. Look, my my takeaway from this conversation and you know the the events we've observed recently, you know, are that they're 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 just clearly such strong underlying forces here, which are. Which make it very clear that things, you know, need to need to and will move in different directions than they have in the past. You know, and it's tough to perfectly predict. You know, I guess what's going to be new versus the kind of age-old adage uh, of you know history repeating itself and kind of reversion to the mean, especially around you know all things economic. Um, but it, but it, you know, fundamentally feels like thing, you know, th- things, things will will continue to look uh, the way they do now, and and increasingly, increasingly different in uh, in the future. As in, you know, using you know whatever like nineteen nineties or early two thousands um, frameworks to think about retail finance uh, investments, banking. You know the, the whole kind of fin, you know, financial services universe. I, I feels very limiting. Totally agree with you there. Um, I think it's definitely a wake up moment for uh, a lot of the traditional financial incumbents um, who are uh, serving these customers, or you know, different generations of these customers. I think the one place that uh, a lot of institutions often go is they start talking about. Uh, the institutional client segments and wholesale business and the, you know, the large capital markets machinery. And I think it's important to understand that uh, that machinery, that capital market structure uh, to make big funds and to do trades with other institutional money managers, that is all a value chain that end of the day ends up um, benefiting some particular individual. Whether it's uh, a holder of a 401k account or a holder of a deposit account, even our um, kind of high-end institutional finance feeds uh, and stops at the end with people. And so we have to very closely watch what people choose, what systems they prefer, and what incentives they like. Thanks so much for uh, joining me for this conversation, Will. Fascinating stuff. Thank you, Lex. This is great. 
Hi, everyone. That's it for this week's episode of the Fintech Blueprint. For more technical deep dives into all things fintech and decentralized finance, check out fintechblueprint.com and grab a free subscription to the newsletter. This is Lex, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>